You know, once a athlete does something great, or maybe the best one in the sport, let's say like Patrick Mahomes, every other QB is always compared back to him. So you watch another football game, and the quarterback does something great, and they say, that's very Mahomes-like, or he looks like Mahomes when he does it. Or if you think of the NBA with Michael Jordan, a player will do something great, and they'll say, that looks like something Jordan would do. And when you see in sports is, they're, 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 sh they're using the greatest, and then they're setting everyone else to that standard. That the greatest become the tool or the doorway in which they discuss the entire sport. And we see that also in the Bible, that it is Jesus Christ who is the greatest part of creation. It is Jesus, the Son of God, who came in the flesh, that is the climax, it is the pinnacle of all of creation. And so everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 ultimately finds its fulfillment, its greatest expression, in Jesus Christ. And what we call, we call that is typology, that while there will be a historical understanding of a text, maybe Exodus or Deuteronomy, Leviticus, there may be an understanding that people had when it was first given. But after the life of Jesus, when we revisit those texts, we see a fuller meaning or a greater expression of those texts. Last week we saw this with the ark. You know, you study Noah's ark in Genesis 6, you learn a lot about God. You learn that God is graciously patient with creation. You learn that God is a redeeming God that provides a passageway for the righteous to be saved. You learn that God is a, is a big God, a God of creation. He can recreate and manipulate creation for His purposes. But even that story does not find its greatest fulfillment until after the life of Jesus. Because once the life of Jesus comes, we realize that Jesus is a greater ark than the one that Noah built. That God has created a greater passage than the one he created through Noah. He has created an eternal passage of salvation, not from a worldwide flood for four generations, but for all men of all humanity for all of eternity. And as a Christian, it's hard not to read Genesis 6 and see the parallels and the, the connections and the overlaps between the ark that saved Noah and our Lord Jesus who saves us by faith. Today we're going to continue that same kind of study. We're going to be doing 11 of them. This is number 2 of 11. And today we're going to be looking at Genesis 22. The story of Abraham and Isaac and their path towards Mount Moriah to offer a sacrifice. And we're going to see that while this story had a historical lesson for thousands of years, once God sends His Son in the New Testament, once God sends Jesus and Jesus lives the life He did, and he gives the death that he did, and he has the resurrection that he experienced it, that he experienced. No one can read Genesis 22 and not see Jesus. No one can read Genesis 22 and not say, while Abraham was willing to give his son, he did not give his son in the end. God was willing to give his son and actually gave him in death for us. So we're going to see today the greater sacrifice than we see in Genesis 22. You know, when you make these connections, I've been telling Adam and Calvin as they're getting ready to preach, I want to make sure we're doing this on the foundation of biblical, or biblical teachings. We believe that the Bible has one author, big A author, and that is God. That God used over 40 humans to record it, but God is the one that ultimately wrote it. And when you have one author, then it would make sense that different parts of that book would work together to make a bigger picture or a fuller meaning. We also believe that the whole Bible is centered on the person and work of Jesus. Everything, like I said from Genesis to Revelation, its ultimate purpose is to teach us about the personhood and the work 
of Jesus Christ. And so the way we do it is we take a historical story like Genesis 22. We really believe that Adam took Isaac. And we really believe they walked up a mountain. We really believe they built an altar. We really believe that he, he laid the wood on Isaac and that he was willing to sacrifice him. And we also really believe that at that moment, God provided a substitute. And we also believe historically that God sent his son 2,000 years ago and that he would ultimately give his life as a sacrifice. So you take one story that's probably 4,000 years old, and you take another narrative that's 2,000 years ago, and you say what God was doing 4,000 years ago looks very similar to what he did 2,000 years ago, but he did it into a greater extent than what he did back then. And what connects these two stories, church, is the lesson that we all need to understand today. God will provide. Those three words summarize Genesis 22. God will provide. Actually, the Hebrew says God will see to it. When Isaac asks Abraham where the sacrifice is, he literally responds, God will see to it. God will see to that issue. And the significance for us today, folks, as we look at this story, is that we all need to leave here today acknowledging the fact that as God's people, we are fully dependent on God's provisions. As God's people, we are fully dependent on God's provisions. If I do my job well, I'm going to show you today that God graciously redeemed his people by sending Jesus as a willing sacrificial substitute. That's on the back of your bulletin. God graciously redeemed his people by sending Jesus as a willing sacrificial substitute. Let's start by just going through Genesis 22. I want to actually read through the narrative. I'll point out some stuff. But for, for us to see a pattern, we must first get the, the first narrative down. We must see what in the Old Testament that we see Jesus in. We need to first understand the story of Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah. So Genesis 22, let's read verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham answered, here I am. God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of, of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Immediately what we see here is that God is requesting that Abraham give back the, the precious promised child. If you go back to Genesis 12, God says, I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm going to give you a great name. You're going to be a blessing. And all of the world will be blessed through your lineage. Then you fast forward to Genesis 15, 16, 17. And guess what God hasn't provided yet? A child. And in those chapters, Abraham laughs at God. Uh, his wife, Sarah, laughs at God. And at one point, Abraham even says, I don't know if you're going to fulfill this promise. I don't even have a child yet. And you see in Genesis 15, 16, 17, this, this doubt whether God was really going to provide this promised child. Because what we need to understand is that this is a promised child, but it's also the path to greater promises. How is God going to create a nation without a lineage? How is God going to bless the world without a lineage? How is Abraham's descendants going to be as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sand of the beach, without first a child to start that lineage? What we need to understand is not only is Isaac a promised child, he is also the path to promises. That's going to be important, because once he gets uh, Isaac in Genesis 21, uh, Sarah conceives and they have a child, you fr from there you think this is perfect. Abraham finally got what he wanted. He got child that was promised to him and through Isaac God is going to bless the nations then you flip over one page to Genesis 22 and it starts with what 
Now, Abraham, give me back that child. Now, wait a minute, God. I waited all these years for this promised child. Check. And this promised child is the path to other promises. So if I sacrifice Isaac, I see no other path for you to be, for you to be able to deliver the promises you've given me. Understand that this is a very weighty request that God is making. He is asking for something precious, and he's asking for something that is the path to future promises. Something that's precious, and something that's going to ultimately lead to something that's even better in the future. And God is saying, give that back, and not only give it back, but I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him. And if you want to see how, how endeared this is, look at the four things he says to Isaac. Look at verse 2. He starts off very generic. Take your son. Then he says, take your only son. Then he mentions the son's name. He makes it personal. You know, Isaac. And then look at the last term of endearment. Whom you love. Folks, understand this is a weighty request from God. God is asking Abraham to give back the most precious thing in his life. And the one thing that can be the path to the promises he wants more than anything. Now, in a secular world, a lot of times we could substitute money for this. People think money is the most precious thing, and they think money is the path to what? To get them anywhere they want to go. It'd be like asking a pagan secular person, give me all of your what? Your money. And that's what God is asking of Abraham. Give it all back to me. Give me what I gave you. Let's continue on in 3 through 6. So Abraham got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split the wood for a burnt offering and set, up, set out to go to the place God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. What you see here is that Abraham has a great initiative. He gets up early in the morning. He even splits the wood before they get to Mount Moriah. That shows initiative. He doesn't want to get there and maybe get cold feet or have to delay his offering. So he's doing everything he can to be prepared. Abraham is more than willing to go along with this plan. We're going to know why in the end of the story, but just understand from day one. Abraham, here I am, Lord. Give me your most precious promise. I got up early in the morning. I saddled my donkey. I split the wood. I got my servants, and I got what you wanted, and we're on the way. Abraham gets the right people, and they start heading in the right direction. Sometimes I wish my kids were more like Abraham. If you want to know how far they have to travel, they have to go 50 miles. We assume that from Beersheba to Moriah is 50 miles. That would be about 16 to 17 miles a day. We think that they got there on day three. So just roughly from here to Platte City-ish, okay? Or from here to Kansas City, all right? So he, he's going to make this journey, and he's going to give back to God what he ultimately has been requested to do. Now let's get to verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac's going to ask probably the most curious question we all have. He's going to ask, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered him, answered him, and here's the first clue or the first possibility of what the narrative could be teaching us. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now the Hebrew here is a little indecisive. 
Some people think that Abraham could have said, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. You know, my son. That he, he's acknowledging the fact that Isaac is. But no matter what it is, Abraham is convinced and Abraham is confident that God is going to do something that is good. It says the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. You know, nowhere in here does it say that Isaac is fighting against this or that Isaac is arguing against this. Uh, up to this point, it seems that while Abraham is obedient, Isaac is cooperative. All right? And, and that's how the narrative lays out here. That he asked him, and he is trusting his father's answer when he says God will provide. He is trusting that. And so while Abraham is being extremely uh, obedient, Isaac is being extremely cooperative. Folks, if this was a Netflix series or a TV show you watched or a movie, the, the, the scene between verse 10 and verse 11 would be extremely intense. All right? You have probably watched three or four episodes of an eight-episode season. You've watched the journey all the way to Mount Moriah. You've watched them hike up the mountain. You've seen the interaction of where's the sacrifice. And then you've, you have a whole episode of Abraham building the altar and bounding up Isaac. And, and back when I was a kid, you know, there were standalone episodes. Nowadays, there's cliffhangers. So you'd watch him bound up Isaac. He would be lifting the knife. And what would happen to that episode? It would, it would end. And then it would say, coming uh, winter of 2025. Just great. By the time it comes back around, you've got to rewatch the first seven because you don't know what's going to happen in the eighth. And so that's what you have. You'd have Abraham up like this, and there's a lot of intensity. And Abraham has not argued with God. Uh, we, we think that um, child sacrifice must have been common throughout the area, must have been common throughout pagans, because Abraham never says, this is the strangest thing God's ever asked me to do. In his mind, child sacrifice must be normal, and so he has the knife up. He's getting ready to slaughter. The Bible literally says he's getting ready to slaughter his son. It says that right there in verse 10. He reached out, he took the knife, to slaughter his son. And then immediately the angel yells out, Abraham, Abraham! Very similar to verse 1, Abraham, without any hesitation, responds to God's message, here I am. Notice he says his name twice, a sense of urgency. I hope he has urgency. If I'm Isaac, I want the angel to have urgency. You know, in the Bible, when God yells someone's name twice, normally it's an urgent thing. He yells at Moses, 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 right before Moses uh, walks into holy ground wearing his shoes. He yells at Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, as Saul's on his way to kill who? Christians. There's a sense of urgency in this scene. As he yells out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to Isaac. For I know, and he's speaking on behalf of God, that you fear God. Since you have not withheld, and listen to the description here, your only son from me. You see those terms of endearment once again. You know, Isaac's name doesn't appear after verse 9 when he is strapped to the altar. I think it's a rhetorical device to let us know that in a way, Abraham was willing to give his son. He was willing to give him up. Isaac is not the, 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 the center of the story, and neither will be Abraham when we get to the naming of the mountain. Do not hurt him. Verse 13, very similar to when they got close to the mountain, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering. That's the very same word for offering that is completely consumed other than the hide. 
We see this in Leviticus 8 and 9. We see this with the Day of Atonement. It is something that is given fully to the Lord. And then look at these five words. Five words that we're going to see Jesus does even greater. In place of his what? His son. See, it's hard to even read this passage without preaching Jesus yet. It's hard to even not steal my own thunder this morning. I, I have to get through this. I'm already wrestling. But if you want to know why I think this is a valid way to read the Bible, is this. No one in this room can ever forget the reality of Jesus Christ. Amen? And when you're reading this, it should stir your heart for what God has done through Jesus Christ. It really should. It, it's hard. i got to keep going here. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it, and Abraham named that place. Now, here's why I think this story is not about Abraham. This story is not about Isaac. Because what was the mountain named? The Lord will provide. What did he tell Isaac going up the mountain? Where's the lamb? The Lord will provide. And then the Lord provides, and he says, this place will be called the Lord will provide. And you say, well, I bet no one knows that. We'll look at the next. So today, now what's this today? This today is when Moses is writing after the Exodus. This is hundreds of years later. Even today, it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. See, the story of Genesis 22 the, the main point of Genesis 22 is this, that Yahweh provides for his people. Yeah, it took an extreme act of obedience for Abraham to get there. Yes, it took a lot of selfless cooperation for Isaac to be used by God. But the main character of Genesis 22, folks, the main theological lesson is this, God provides for his people. He needed a sacrifice, and who provided one? God did. Isaac needed a substitute, and who provided one? He did. Abraham needed someone other than his precious thing to be taken, and God provided it. Notice here it says, I know that you fear me. I know that you trust in me. The point of it was to use Abraham and Isaac to teach us the lesson, God will provide. Now, 15 through 19 is what we call falling action. It's kind of like the last episode of a season. It just kind of wraps everything together. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is God recommitting and reaffirming his covenant. This is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son. Notice how many times the, the endearment language is here. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Your offspring will possess, possess the city gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. If you want to know how important verse 18 is, folks, we are the God's people because we are one of those nations that have been blessed through the lineage of Abraham. And so we have this story here, and sometimes in Sunday school, maybe you would just study Genesis 22, and we would have a motion to adjourn now, and, and I would just talk about how God provides. I'd give you three ways He can provide in your life today, and we would pray and we'd go home. But in this sermon series, we want to take the time now that we've established God will provide out of Genesis 22, now we get to have the fun part of showing you how the life of Jesus supersedes or gives greater expression to what we just read. I get to show you three ways that as you read this, you were tempted to already think about Jesus while you were reading about Abraham and Isaac. And the first one I want to start with, and your bulletin, I've switched my order. I want to do God first and then Jesus. The first one is this. Genesis 22 foreshadows God's redemptive work that he would do for his people in Jesus. Genesis 22 foreshadows God's redemptive work that he would do for his people in Jesus. The God we meet in Genesis 22 
is the same God uh, that sends his son to die for us. Now, I have to give a rationale to God asking for Isaac. I don't want you to get in your car on your way home and your 13-year-old son say, how can God say, kill your son? Is that right for God to do that? Let me say loud and clear, throughout the entire Old Testament, child sacrifice is condemned. Leviticus 18, 21, Leviticus 20, 1 through 5, Deuteronomy 18. They all talk about the condemnation of child sacrifice. Uh, Hamilton, who's a scholar who wrote a commentary, says this. God condemned child sacrifice through the priest, through the Deuteronomist, through the kings, and through the prophets. For God to use every form of messenger in the Old Testament, he must have wanted to make it clear he does not support the sacrifice of children. That's why if you stop the story at verse 2, God seems to be contradicting himself. If all we had was verses 1 and 2, God would seem contradictory. He would seem decessive, irrational. He would seem harsh and evil and cruel. If you stop reading after verse 2 and all you know is God saying, go and kill your son, and then you closed your Bible and never read again, I could see how you get to the point of thinking God is a cruel, contradictory God. But folks, we have to understand that every verse has a context. Every point is part of a bigger narrative. And when you read from 1 to 19, you understand that God's purpose of this was not child sacrifice. It was to demonstrate that he's willing to provide for his people. That he really was never truly asking for Isaac. He was never truly going to allow Abraham to kill Isaac. He was using Abraham and Isaac to set a scene so that he could demonstrate his gracious giving and provisions for his people. So I, I understand verse 2 may, you know, we had to teach us at Good News Club. I don't know if you guys know this. We had to sit at Hosea Elementary with a, a school teacher sitting behind me, and I had to teach the sacrifice of Isaac and Abraham. And I had to tell the kids, when we first start the story, God tells Abraham to go kill Isaac. And then I had to take about 22 minutes and say, but he's not going to. And don't go kill people on the playground. And don't hurt your brother and sister. And God doesn't support violence. And that's what we have to do because if you only had verse 2, you could see how some really evil people could use it to make a really evil God. But folks, everything has a context. And the wider context, God condemns it. And even in this passage, he never was going to allow it. But he needed the perfect picture to teach us about his gracious provisions. So that 2,000 years later, when Jesus is sent, we can see that it's the same God who is teaching Abraham in 22. So what do we learn about God here? We learn that God provides for his people, which screams the teaching in the New Testament that God sent his son for us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. God's love was revealed among us in this way. Listen, God sent his one and only son. Do you hear the words of endearment? His one and only son. How was Isaac described in the Old Testament? His one and only son. See, Jesus is precious to God. But he's also the path, the promises for his people. See, Isaac was precious. And Isaac was a path. Jesus is precious. And Jesus is also our path, the promises. God sent him for us. 1 John 4, 14, which we'll get to in J2G in about three weeks. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent His Son as the world's Savior. And not only did He send His Son, folks, listen to how He sent His Son. 
Romans 3.25. God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his restraint passed over sins previously committed. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God not only sent his son, he sent his son to be a sacrifice for us. See, in the story of Isaac, it ends with the beloved father not sacrificing his son. The intensification in the New Testament is a father does send his only son and a father does allow him to die. The story is much greater. It's one thing to be willing, it's another thing for it to occur. So you say, well, Pastor Jacob, everyone can, can see that. Everyone can connect those dots. You're not, don't act like you're so brilliant to say, well, you know, Abraham was willing to give his son and God was willing to give his. So what? What does it matter? Well, let's just really think about it. Without God preserving Isaac, there would be no Jews. Every Jew that lives today in that ethnic, in that people group, all Jews owe their existence back to one man, and he, he is Isaac. God literally protected the existence of a whole people group when he gave the sacrifice, when he gave the ram and the substitute. Do you understand? There would not be Jews today if God would not have provided a substitute and Isaac really was killed. So an entire people group owes their existence to the fact that God graciously provided a substitute. Not just the Jews, folks. You know that Christians would not exist today if it wasn't for the fact of God providing a substitute in His Son Jesus for us. A whole, all of God's people, all of Christendom, all of Christianity would not exist today without the sending of His Son to be our substitute for our sins. So the same way the Jews owe their physical existence to the substitute ram in the thicket, we owe our whole existence as Christians to Jesus Christ as our substitute on that cross. That's why it matters. It matters to the Jews for their people group, and it matters in the New Testament for me and you, because you would not be who you are in God's kingdom. You would not be his child. You would not be his saint. You would not be his soldier. You would not be in his family if it wasn't for the son that substituted for you as a sacrifice. So it, it does matter that God was willing to send his son. Your existence in Christ would not exist. So you know how you love to use the phrase, in Christ, in Christ. I'm forgiven in Christ. I have eternal life in Christ. I'm, I, have, I have hope in Christ. I have victory over death in Christ. That existence in Christ would not exist if God did not send his son as a substituting sacrifice. He teased it in Genesis 22. He saved a lineage by a substitute. But he did a greater thing in the New Testament. He saved a kingdom through a substitute. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. I, I, I sat in my chair and I wanted to argue with God saying, there would still be Jews. No, there really wouldn't. There would not be the people group of Jews without Isaac continuing. That's why in John 1.12 he says, But to all who received Jesus, he gave them a right to be children of God. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed is God the Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, you used to be without Christ, excluded from Israel, foreigners of the covenant, without hope and without God. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near 
by the blood of Jesus. Which brings me to my second one I want to look at, is not only do I see a, a typological representation between uh, Abraham giving of Isaac and God giving of his son, but even Isaac himself is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Isaac himself. You know, it's prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7, that the Messiah one day would be led to the slaughter, and as he's being led to a slaughter, he would not open his what? His mouth. You know, when you're reading in Genesis 22, it's fascinating that Isaac never argues with his father. I mean, that's what good children do. They don't argue with their father. You know? It's what good church members do. They don't argue. With, I'm just kidding. Uh, they don't argue. It, it's amazing when you're reading 22. If my kids are Isaac, that chapter is 15 chapters long. All right? But Isaac is silent. And I think the reason is, because we have one big A author, the same way Isaac was silent as a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus was silent as a, led, as a lamb led to the what? Slaughter. So you can't read the silence of Isaac without saying, that's Jesus. And you know why it's greater than Isaac? Isaac wasn't getting beat and mocked and spit upon and, and kicked when he was walking up that mountain. He was walking up that mountain with a loving what? Father. Who was praying the whole time, God, you will provide something else. Jesus, on the other hand, when he was silent, was being mocked and spit upon and beaten and crown of thorns and lashed and paraded around. And yet, to a greater extent, he was silent on his way to the slaughter. And Jesus was willing to. Remember in John 17, he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son as I glorify you. And in Matthew 26, he prays all night. God, made this cup pass for me. Made this cup pass. He's bleeding. He is sweating blood. But what does he say at the end? Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, Isaac was willing. And Isaac was silent. And Jesus was willing. You know it says in the Bible that Jesus did not consider his equality with God as something to be exploited. Yet Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of flesh. Jesus decided to come as a man and he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaac's cooperation is a little foreshadowing of the Son of God's greater cooperation for the eternal plan of redemption. Isaac had to carry his own wood up the hill. Can you imagine that? You get halfway up the hill and you realize there's no lamb. And your dad just said something along the lines of, God will provide a lamb, my son. And you're starting to wonder, one of us may not come back. And you're the one carrying the wood. And you know what the wood gets laid upon? The sacrifice. You know who else carries his own cross? Jesus. Jesus carries his own cross. John 19, 17. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what, to what is called the place of the skull. Once again, another foreshadowing. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. You're like, well, I haven't heard the word Jerusalem all morning, Pastor. Well, we think that Mount, we think Moriah is just outside of Jerusalem. We think that uh, the only other time that Moriah is mentioned in the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles 3.1. And listen to what is described, or how do I say this? When the biblical author had to describe where Moriah was or what Moriah was, this is what it said. Moriah is connected with Jerusalem, specifically where Solomon built the temple. So if you want to know where Moriah is, it's where Solomon built the temple. Where did Solomon build the temple? Jerusalem. 2,000 years before God's son is crucified in Jerusalem, 
God foreshadows it with Abraham walking up a mountain in Jerusalem. Do you see just the beauty of God's word? And, and as Jesus is walking up to the place of the school, maybe someone in that audience said, hey, isn't this the mountain where the Lord will provide? Isn't this the place where, where God provided a substitute? Maybe Jesus won't have to die. Maybe someone will, maybe God has different, but you would see that there's a rich heritage in Jerusalem of the place where God will provide. And while he didn't provide a, a different sacrifice, I think we all would agree that what Jesus did on the cross truly did provide for us. Abraham said 2,000 years before Jesus, this mountain will be known as the place where the Lord provides. And if you went to Jerusalem today, I bet you'd have no problem saying this. And even today, this is the place where the Lord provided. God was, God was teasing this in Genesis 22 so that he could fulfill it in the Gospels. But probably the most important thing we need to connect is that Jesus truly is our sacrificial substitute. He truly is the lamb that takes away our sin. You know, I understand that Isaac... God is substitute. Jesus is both Isaac and Jesus is also the ram in the thicket. Jesus didn't have the privilege of another, of another person taking his, uh, his sacrifice. Jesus didn't have the privilege of a ram being provided. He was the ram. He was the lamb. In John 1.29, John the Baptist says at the very beginning of his ministry, Look, behold, the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 says, You know you were not redeemed. Or you know you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. Now listen to the description. Like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. This was prophesied in Isaiah 53. Remember Isaiah 53? One day there will be a suffering servant who will be pierced and crushed and punished, oppressed, afflicted. Led like a lamb to the slaughter, submitted to death, accounted among the rebels, and he will bore the sins of many folks. That is Jesus Christ. Jesus was the, the willing, silent son, carrying his own cross up the mountain. And Jesus is the ram in the thicket, because he's ultimately the lamb that was sacrificed for our sins. So what? So what that God had all this redemptive thread and this crimson thread? So what, Pastor? Well, may I remind you the necessity of a sacrifice today. Romans 1.18 says, God has revealed his wrath against all unrighteousness and suppression of the truth. It says that he has revealed his wrath against everyone who did not glorify him. Romans 1.21. Romans 1.25, that you're unrighteous when you worship the creation rather than the creator. Romans 1.28, you are unrighteous when you do not acknowledge it worthwhile to acknowledge God. Folks, I guarantee everyone in this room at one point has worshipped the creation rather than the creator. I guarantee everyone in here at some point did not think it was necessary to glorify God. I guarantee everyone in this room at some point or not has suppressed the truth of God and his role as creator. I guarantee without a shadow of a doubt all of us are wretched old guilty sinners. So what? Well, Romans 1.32 says... Although they know God's just sentence, or God's punishment, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Let 
you know, we, we, we actually do deserve to die. We actually do deserve to be the man on the cross or the woman on the cross. We actually do deserve God's wrathful punishment. All of us in this room have dishonored God or brought shame upon God or disrespected God or broke God's law. We all deserve to die for that. Don't ever forget that, that brutal cold truth today and this cold day. That if you really look at your own morality and your own goodness and your own works and your own value before a holy, righteous, perfect God, you deserve to be annihilated in your rebellion. You do deserve to die. But yet, you don't have to die because God provided His Son to be a sacrificial substitute for you. You actually can be in God's family because someone else paid the price of admission for you. You can actually be adopted into God's family because someone actually paid the legal fees to get you into that family. You actually can be right with that God because someone experienced something he never deserved. His name is Jesus. He did it in cooperation. He did it in humility. He did it in silence because he loved you. And gave his life for you. Just like Isaac. But a little bit different. Because there was no substitute for him. And lastly, and then we'll wrap this thing up. I think Abraham lays a foundation for God's people. Or I think I put in your bulletin, he sets a standard. He sets a standard of belief in resurrection. I said earlier, you read Genesis 15, 16, 17. It doesn't look good for Abraham. His wife is laughing at God. He's laughing at God. He's complaining to God. He, he grumbles to God that he's childish or childless because he is childish. All right? He does not have faith in God. Then all of a sudden, Genesis 21 happens, and the man has a moment of maturity because he, he sees that God is able to resurrect a 99-year-old woman's womb and to resurrect a 100-year-old man's re reproductive parts, okay? And he's able to do all that. And in the end, Sarah bears him a child. And you know what it says in Romans 5? It says that Abraham never, never wavered in his faith, but he was fully convinced that God was able to bring about anything that he desired to bring about. Let me read it here in Romans 5. He did not waver in his faith. He did not weaken his faith when he considered his own body already dead. Abraham considered his body dead since he was about 100 years old. And he also, the deadness of Sarah's womb, not very polite to say about your wife. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do. Folks, when you have Isaac as your child and you see God resurrect your wife's womb and resurrect your body, I bet your belief in resurrection grows immensely. And that's why in Hebrews 11 it says, By faith, when Abraham was tested, he offered Isaac up. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son. This is Hebrews 11. The one whom he had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. But listen to why Abraham was willing to offer Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. The Bible says that the reason Abraham was willing to raise the knife and slaughter his son is because Abraham had matured in his faith enough where he believed even if he killed Isaac, 
God could resurrect him from the dead. Well, why did he believe in the resurrection? Because of what God had already done in the womb of his wife. And I think it sets a standard for you and I. That the same way resurrection was a key doctrine in the faith of Abraham, resurrection is an absolute key essential in the faith of a Christian. Our entire faith rests on the fact that we believe that Jesus raised from the dead. So much so that in 1 Corinthians 15 it says this, Now if, we, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection of the dead, that not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. See, resurrection is a key component of the faith Abraham demonstrated on Mount Moriah, and in a much more greater way, resurrection is a key component of the Christian faith. You must believe that although Christ died on a cross and was buried for three days, God raised him from the dead and victory over sin and death. And if you do not believe that God raised his son from the dead, your faith is useless, my teaching is in vain, and we have no hope of eternal life. You think Abraham's belief in resurrection, resurrection was important? His belief was important, so important that he was willing to kill his son. Your faith in resurrection is even greater. It's greater because your eternal destination depends on it. For the same way that all died in Adam, so also in, all Christ, in, all, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So we see these, these theological doctrines. We see God showing us a father willing to send his son. And then he ultimately sent his son and ultimately allowed him to die. We see Isaac, who is a silent sacrifice, walking up the hill and willingly cooperating. And then 2,000 years later, we see Jesus doing it to even a greater extent because he does lose his life. We see Abraham showing us the importance of believing that God is a resurrecting God. And we see the necessity of that in our faith today. For if Jesus is dead in the tomb, we have no hope at all. And, and God taught us these, these little teachings in seed form in Genesis 22. And then you and I, we belong in this period of history. Where we get the joy of being on this side of the cross and looking back at Genesis 22 and saying, if only they knew what we knew. If only they knew there would be a greater father than Abraham. If only they knew there was a greater Isaac. If only they knew that we would have a greater faith in resurrection. If only they knew. Today as we end, I've shown you Genesis 22 historically. I've shown you how in the New Testament it's fulfilled to a greater expression. I've shown you that God graciously redeems his people by sending Jesus a willing sacrifice. I want to end today by just revisiting the idea that God will provide. You know, I love to go to Walmart to shop because I'm kind of lazy. I don't want to go to 15 stores to get what I can get one place. I don't know if anyone's ever shown you this probably today, but you can buy car oil, eggs, socks, uh, fishing lures, shampoo, and medicine all at the same place. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. You can go to one store and you can get all of those items at the same time. Walmart is almost like a type of God. In a sense that at Walmart, it's a one-stop shop. You go to Walmart, I can get Jennifer's eggs for breakfast, I can get Dayton's fishing lures for fishing, I can get deodorant, I can get shampoo, I can get 
batteries for Eli's controller. I can get chewing gum. I can get whatever I need in one place. And to a much greater extent, and hear me loud and clear, to a greater extent, God is a one-stop shop. Folks, God will provide. God will provide. I don't know your whole background. I don't know what you bring in here today. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where your family's at. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're celebrating. But I can tell you this. God can provide. He can provide the salvation for the lost. He can provide the sanctification for the saved. He can provide glorification for all of us one day after we die. You worried about where you're going when you die? God can provide you a hope in that. God can provide transformation. You tired of lying and cussing and hating everyone? God can, can transform you today. And it's all in one, in one person this can happen. It's a relationship with God. And so I don't know what you're going through, but I can tell you this. God is a one-stop shop. He will provide. Pray with me. Heavenly Father.